2029, written and read by Michael T. Whistler. Chapter 15, How the Sausage Gets Made. The 86 Toyota is sporting a brand new hood ornament. The unconscious and bleeding blonde teenager as it slowly rolls down Highway 24 for the final stretch into Fruta, with the Ford and camper close behind. Sally the dog is now riding in the new or in the camper, not understanding the drama which is unfolding around her, but smart enough to know something is up, sensing energies are high. The boy is <clears throat> lucky to be unconscious at this point, as he has no idea he is being used for a human shield and is blissfully unaware of the possibility of taking another bullet before the day is done. After the Max Kruger, Tyne Euler, and Holt Orchards, past the petroglyph panel is the Smith, Cook, Jackson, and Guy Smith Orchards, each named after their previous owner. When Merle worked here, he learned from Roger Euler that there is still quite a bit of animosity towards the National Park Service for stealing these orchards away from their rightful owners, not to mention the remaining historic Fruta schoolhouse, Gifford House, and Blacksmith Shop, all equally in shambles, as well as the long-ago demolished motel and home sites. It appears that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it appeared to the small town of Fruta that their property rights meant nothing to the federal government, and they were right in thinking so. Capitol Reef was made a national monument in 1937, but was not generally open to the public until the 1950s, as private landowners still occupied the little town of Fruta, but were all of the sudden surrounded on all sides by federally protected, quote-unquote, slash owned land. No designated hiking trails through the park had been established yet, only volunteer trails that have a way of popping up wherever there is something of interest to see. For instance, the Hickman Bridge, which is similar to a natural arch except for the water beneath it, was a very popular location going back many generations. There are carved signatures from various visitors to the natural bridge, going back to the mid-1800s and beyond, with a few native petroglyphs alongside these pioneer signatures. When Capitol Reef was declared a national park in December of 1971, the town of Fruta was declared officially dead. This was signed into law by President Nixon in a rare act of what seemed to be altruism, but ultimately was about earning political brownie points in an attempt to seem environmentally conscious. It ultimately spelled disaster for the community of Fruta, which had been there for around 200 years and had never numbered more than a dozen families, the last in a long line of permanent or semi-permanent human settlements in Fruta, not counting the park housing area and campground. The year 1971 also marks the year in which it became illegal to carve new petroglyphs into the cliffs and boulders of Capitol Reef an ancient tradition. The surrounding community of Wayne County, as stated, generally hates governments of all kind. They always did and always will. That is, any form of government outside of the Church of Latter-day Saints. 
They didn't like the NPS, the BLM, or the NFS, not to mention Fish and Game, the Utah Water Authority, Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Agriculture, Food and Drug Administration, or any other branch in Washington, D.C. or Salt Lake City. But the one agency they hated above all others, as it ought always be, was the IRS. These are desert people, Utahns. They don't, <clears throat> they don't see much point in sending money to politicians who, in their estimation, were unlikely to do anything with it except declare and seize more land within their state. While Merle appreciates <clears throat> the benefits of setting aside wilderness and protecting it for what it is, he does not agree with the acquisition of the town of Fruta upon long consideration. In his experience of working in the orchards, the National Park Service was killing the fruit trees that gave Fruta its modern name through a slow death of mismanagement, torturously. The great nephew of Valentine Euler, for instance, with true ownership and the spoils that come with it, would likely have grown healthier trees in his ancestral orchard rather than simply cutting the grass. The skills, unfortunately, had not been passed on through the generations, and the park had no financial incentive to keep the trees healthy, only a historic mandate to quote-unquote preserve them. Roger couldn't prune a tree to save his life, even though his great-uncle had been an expert orchardist. The line had already been broken. Knowledge and skills were lost in a single generation, and that's exactly how they liked it. As the two vehicles swing around the last bend by the Holt, Guysmith, and Jackson orchards, the park's housing area comes into view. It is a small residential street and cul-de-sac with 12 houses, all painted NPS brown, including two dorms and a four-unit apartment building. The drab, small suburb sits across from the Fremont... <clears throat> sits across the Fremont from the road and through a line of cottonwood trees with leaves dancing in the breeze, quaking like the aspens and still shedding their cottony seeds. The visitor center comes into view next. It is an interesting structure blending something of the Southwest aesthetic with art deco slash modern, modern architecture of the 1970s with a slanted roof and built out of red rocks, both blending into and sticking out from the landscape. One of the rare examples of an attractive government building. Hayduke taps his brakes twice, signaling to Merle to execute his turn, which he does with a wide arc, anticipating exactly where to park the 40 feet of truck and trailer. He slowly, but not too slowly, uh, excuse me. He slowly, but not too slowly gets into position, as soon as the truck is in park, he kills the 5.4 V8 engine, knowing he needs to hear what's happening. He throws his door open, leaving it wide to provide additional cover to the south, and the window rolled down in case he needs to sh shoot through it. His rig is now blocking most of both roads as planned, taking up the bulk of the blacktop intersection and creating a massive crescent-shaped barricade. AK slung around his neck, Merle grabs the pistol grip of the rifle and exits the truck, scanning 360 degrees as he moves into position behind the rear tire and truck bed as instructed. 
He sees nobody, but continues scanning. Resting the rifle on the bed rail, he aims towards the suspected location of the band of carjackers. He sees Hayduke's Toyota about halfway from him to the bridge, parked and idling quietly with its much smaller but better Japanese engine, running just as smooth as it had 40 years prior when it emerged from the factory, if not more smooth. Merle glances up the boulder field to the right, then turns and looks again towards the southern road, seeing no movement and finally looks towards the bridge, beyond it and checking both sides of it. He finally narrows his vision, seeing something glinting with sunlight to the left side of the bridge, a rifle scope. The bridge is about 50 yards from Merle's position, 25 from Duke's. Merle thinks about firing a warning shot over the opponent's heads, not liking the idea of being in the crosshairs of a sniper rifle, probably something intended for big game, which he supposes he now is. This makes him nervous, but Hey Duke is in charge. Follow his lead, he thinks. Let's not fuck it up and start a shootout unless we must. Follow the rules of engagement. He continues scanning left and right, but keeps his rifle towards where he had seen the flash of light. We know you're out there, fucktards, screams Hayduke through the open window from inside the Toyota, staying out of sight. I've got your boy here. If you didn't notice, strapped here on the hood of my truck, emphasizing his ownership. Y'all wanted so fucking bad. He's bleeding. I shot him in the arm. He ain't dead yet, but if you fuck around, he gets it right here, right now, in the head. He continues. I've got a trained, not exactly, but they don't need to know, rifleman pointing a Kalashnikov at you. That's an AK-47, you numb skulls. Do not, I repeat, do not do anything stupid or we will kill every last one of you shit-for-brains motherfuckers. Merle likes Hayduke's approach. Straightforward, brutally insulting, and potentially psychotic. In other words, making it abundantly clear that he is not to be trifled with. There is a moment of total silence before a defiant-sounding voice comes from under the bridge. How do we know he's not dead already? Hayduke thinks for a second and shouts, If he was dead, how did we know where you were, dumbass? Look, we even dressed his wound and slowed the bleeding. Why would we waste our bandages on a dead man? Now that's all the reassurance you're going to get out of me. Merle was feeling nervous, anxious, not sure how this is going to shake out. He checks the safety on his AK and sees it's in the fire position, ready to go. He carefully, or he is careful to keep his finger off the trigger for the moment as he does a, another quick look left down the park's scenic drive, and then right towards the cliffs and the boulder field, keeping his rifle trained dead ahead, staying low. He sees nothing, but knows that he is within an easy shot for any rifle with a scope, even behind his cover, feeling slightly disadvantaged, wishing he had grabbed his old Springfield rifle instead, as it has magnification. Now here's what we're gonna do, boys, Hayduke says, trying to sound halfway reasonable all things considered, not wanting things to escalate beyond control. You fuckers elect somebody 
to collect up your weapons and walk them out onto the blacktop where we can see them. And it had better be every last one of them, by God, or I'll kill every last fucking one of you. I have grenades, you dumb fucks. Do not try me. Bullshit, yells the same voice from under the bridge. Merle knows better than to doubt Hayduke at this point, remembering the wooden ammo box and becoming more uneasy, scanning again, heart speeding up. Hayduke, laying across the driver's side, or driver and passenger seats, unlatches the box and sees 22 grab, drab green, spherical shaped devices of carnage, packed into dry straw and arranged neatly in three rows. Two outer rows of seven and an inner row of eight, nested together tightly like robin's eggs, but carrying the potential of death instead of life. M67 fragmentation grenades, referred to as the baseball grenade because of its shape, each with a four-second fuse, ring pin, and hooked safety lever. He grabs one. Oh yeah? You must be some kind of dumb fucker to tempt me like that. Want to find out? He screams like a rabid animal <clears throat> as he quickly, but not rushing, pulls the pin, sits up, and lobs the grenade out the driver's side window left-handed, hearing the unmistakable ting of the spring-loaded safety lever flying off the grenade as he sends it. It lands exactly as planned, closer to them than to him, about 15 yards ahead, 8 or 10 from the foes, into a rubble-filled drainage ditch, heading towards the creek, and by virtue, the enemy's hiding spot. The placement is as, is as intended, close enough to scare the piss out of these amateurs, but far enough away not to kill them, most likely. The four-second delay fuse burns, releasing a small bit of smoke before the primer ignites the charge of 180 grams of compound B explosive, a nasty blend of TNT and RDX. The grenade explodes, sending shards of metal and rock flying up in all directions, up and out, and leaving a small crater. A few pebbles land on the hood of the hood and roof of the Toyota, and one hits the injured boy square in the nose, causing him to moan softly but not quite wake up. Next one goes up your ass, fuckface. Next person to question what I say or do anything I don't like gets it. Okay, okay, he hears from under the bridge. It's a different voice this time. Older, lower, and more steady. We'll do as you say. One of us is coming out with the guns, so please don't shoot. This man doesn't need to yell to be heard, as his deep voice carries well over the smooth surface of the road. Better be all of them, and cradle them in your arms. If I see, grip, or if I see hands on grips... I'll run the man over and drop a grenade on the rest of you while, while I'm at it. An older-looking man, white-haired and round belly, emerges, with three rifles and two pistols cradled awkwardly in his arms, as if carrying a load of firewood, carefully keeping both hands up with his fingers spread out wide. Hayduke peers over the dash and watches him closely. Merle scans the surrounding landscape again, but does not move his rifle, knowing there must be at least two more brothers out there. Good man. Now lay him in the middle of the road, on the bridge, in a pile, nice and slow, and turn towards me with your hands way above your head. The man complies. 
Now walk towards me. Keep going. Okay, stop. The older man stops 10 yards in front of Hayduke and his Toyota, who continues to peer over the dashboard. With his left hand on the bottom of the wheel, he shifts the truck into drive with his right and feathers the clutch in his awkward position, crawling his truck slowly towards the man. Hayduke stops dead ahead of him, only a foot shy, putting the shift lever back into neutral, letting go of the clutch, but keeping his foot on the brake. He says, Take one step to the right, Hayduke demands, creating a second human shield by blocking the view to himself from those under the bridge, allowing him to sit up in the driver's seat comfortably now and look directly at the man who is looking back, looking right back at him, hands still raised. Now lift your shirt and spin slowly. He wanted to be certain the man wasn't concealing anything. The man complies, and Duke sees nothing in his waist belt, though it is not a foolproof search it would have to do. Hey Duke now spe- speaks quieter to the man, leaning out of the window, motioning for him to step around the corner of the truck and closer to him, pointing at the spot just out of arm's reach for the man to stand on, which he does, keeping both hands high. Merle no longer can hear, <clears throat> but keeps his focus on the darkness below the bridge, continuing to periodically glance both ways. Hayduke asks if the old man is the boy's father or not, to which he gets a nod indicating he is. He asks the father if he wants the boy to survive this ordeal, to which the man nods again, with his eyes on the ground, looking fully ashamed. You have a pocket knife on you, old man? asks Hayduke, receiving an uncertain stammer. It's not a trick, just answer. Hands raised, the man more clearly says, Yes, sir nodding again, but still avoiding eye contact. Good. Now, before you grab it, I want you to look at me. The man complies, meeting Hayduke's eyes, which he finds surprisingly welcoming. Hayduke continues by asking a few more questions. How many boys you got there? Five. I mean, four. Five including myself. Five men here. This one doesn't look like a man to me, says Hey Duke. He's just a boy. Yes, sir. Are all the other boys down there under the bridge? Tell me the truth now. I'm still holding your lives in my hands. He shows the man another grenade. Yes, sir. There are others. The others are down there. I swear on, I swear on my life and theirs. Mormons were schooled never to swear to God or to anything they can't control. So the old man, in his promise, hopes that his life and those of his sons are still within his ability to influence. He looks at his boy sprawled across Hayduke's hood, knowing he is at this dangerous man's mercy. Good answer. Now, I want you to holler over to your boys over there and tell them to come out and walk halfway to us. Tell them I want their hands as high up as they can go. If one of them doesn't comply, my man behind the ford over there will not hesitate to put them all down. He's done it before. This last statement made the hair on the old man's neck stand up, believing the half bluff. Now do it, and tell him to move slow. The old man takes a deep breath, 
All right, boys, he shouts, not turning away from Hayduke, but turning his head slightly towards the cliffs, throwing his booming, gravelly voice and filling the air with it. These men are trying to get us all out of here alive, but we need to do exactly as they ask. He takes another deep breath, about to speak again, but is interrupted. But Paul, one of the boys says, they've got John. No buts, he says sharply. They're going to give him back to us. Now this man needs you boys to come out very slow with your hands towards the sky, high up in the air, all the way. No messing about now, boys. This is serious business. We lost this one. Let's just try to all walk away from it. Nothing foolish. You hear me, Luke? Yes, Paul, I understand. After a moment, three young men, all appearing, excuse me, all bearing striking resemblance to each other, emerge from, from their hiding place with their hands up. They begin walking towards Hayduke, the old man and their brother on the hood. Merle keeps his AK pointed at the biggest of the bunch, the boy he presumes to be Luke who sounds like the troublemaker. When they got about halfway to Hayduke and the old man, Hayduke tells them, Stop there and don't move a muscle. You got him? He asks. Merle, knowing by the tone that the question was directed at him, he answers confidently, Yeah, I got him. Choosing not to shout, but to sound like the cold-blooded killer he's pretending to be, deep-voiced and just loud enough to be heard. Stay on him, especially the tall one. Hey Duke looks back at the old man, looking penetratingly into his eyes, locking in on them. He says, what's your name, old man? John Willis Sr. That boy on the hood there is John Jr. Then you've got Luke, Mark, and Paul down there. No Matt, asks Hey Duke, having knowledge of the Gospels. Matthew is at home with his mother. He's only 10. Where do y'all live? The old man hesitates, but knows not to lie. This man was capable of finding out anyways, now that he has their names. He admits, over in Bicknell. The Willises are easy to find, I imagine, he he says, making an indirect threat. Yes, sir, I am afraid we are, he says, completely defeated. Pretty foolish games y'all are playing out here, John. The rotund man looks back at his feet and and replies sheepishly, Yes, sir. Pretty bad example you're setting for your boys, don't you think? Yes, sir. John Sr.'s lips begin to quiver, and a lump forms in his throat, realizing his sinfulness. Hayduke is rubbing it in purposefully. He wants the old man to feel bad as he cares about his truck more than nearly anything else, aside from his own family, however estranged he might be from them. The difference in his mind is that he left his family to keep them safe from himself. He would never have done anything like this with his own children, putting them in such unnecessary danger. He wants to break John Sr.'s will, tear him down so that he might start over fresh. This would be his good deed for the day. Hayduke continues. If I ever hear of anyone getting carjacked in this county, I'm going to assume it was y'all. 
I don't care if someone else confesses even. I will hold you responsible. Do you know what I'm going to do if that happens? The old man doesn't know, but he has an idea or two. All terrible and simply chooses to say, yes, sir, one more time. Not necessarily wanting to know what Hayduke had in mind. You swear to me on your family? Yes, sir. I swear to you on my family. I'm not a bad man, just a mite desperate. I don't need your goddamn excuses, says Hayduke, using the most despised curse for all Mormons, very much intentionally. You sack of fucking shit. What kind of Mormon are you anyways? What kind of man are you? Trying to steal another man's vehicle? Not very Christian, or very honorable, if you ask me. Shame on you. Why don't you try to make an honest way of life for you and your boys? This cuts the man deeper than Haydu could have predicted. He, his head hangs low, deeply remorseful, already praying for forgiveness, keeping his hands up, but turning his palms open to the sky, as if in a stance of a religious relinquishment of control, trembling slightly under the pressure of rebirth. You know I could have blown you all sky high, but I chose not to, right? Yes, sir. I'm, I'm sorry, he says as he begins crying. Completely deflated, he falls to his knees, appearing as though he might melt into a puddle of goo at Hayduke's righteous line of questioning. The boys, minus John Jr., all witness their father kneeling before Hayduke, now clasping his hands, pleading for forgiveness from both God and the man representing him in the Toyota. I didn't want to kill any of you. You see how I did everything not to, don't you? Yes, sir. I want you to remember that. Don't you ever forget I spared your lives. Yes, sir. And I want you to know that next time you won't find me as generous. This is your one and only warning. Yes, sir. Now this boy on my hood needs to get to the clinic in Bicknell quick. We've spent a lot of time talking. But seeing as I don't trust you fuckers one bit, I'll have to deliver him myself. You boys are walking home. Now cut him down with that pocket knife and load him into my passenger seat real slow. At this point, Hayduke draws his pistol, which had been holstered throughout this ordeal. He opens the driver's side door and steps out, not pointing the weapon directly at the man or his sons, but at the ground in front of himself, watching John Sr. closely but keeping some distance from him, while he uses the pocket knife to cut the zip ties, freeing his son's limbs. <clears throat> John puts the pocket knife back in his front pocket and does as instructed, lowering the unconscious, pale-looking boy into the passenger seat of the Toyota, feet resting on the closed box of grenades in the footwell. He buckles him in lovingly, kisses the boy's forehead, and shuts the door. The boy then slumps over towards the driver's side, and the father makes a move to open the door again, wanting to pull him back upright, not liking to see his son in such an uncomfortable position and so close to death. No, good enough, shouts Hayduke sternly. Now walk backwards to the rest of your boys real slow. All of you motherfuckers better stand like statues till your paw gets there. Keep those hands up high. 
He, he yells to them. Get moving, he says by waving the man off with his pistol, flagging him with the barrel, communicating non-verbally, and meeting his eyes once more. The man starts walking backwards towards his three conscious progeny. When your paw gets to you, boys, I want y'all to stand in a line holding hands with each other, but keep them up high. Hey, Merle, come over here a second. Merle moves around the back of the truck, keeping the Kalashnikov trained on the group and his finger off the trigger, but safety still off. He carefully steps over the tongue of his trailer, keeping the weapon smooth and level. He walks over, and Hayduke says to him quietly, Cover me. I'm going to zip tie them all to each other and then to that bike rack over there. Bet they'll figure their way out of it quick enough to walk out of here before dark. There is a brown highway sign, the official park's shade of brown, but faded with age, just past the bridge, reading Tory 8, Bicknell 18, Loa 29. It would be a long uphill walk with Bicknell sitting a thousand feet higher in elevation than Fruta. Hayduke collects some heavy-duty zip ties from his tool bag in the Land Cruiser and walks over to the group, whose arms are dutifully held high, hands clasped together in a chain. The tallest boy, Luke, gives Hayduke a nasty, stink-eyed glare. You got a problem with being alive, boy? Hayduke asks, menacingly sarcastic. I could kill, or I could have killed you 16 times over by now. You keep your goddamn eyes to yourself, you little shit, or I'll pull them from your fucking skull with your own goddamn fingers. Hayduke utters, being far from a saint despite his mission. Do as the man says, Luke, shouts the father. Listen to your father, Luke. He's a smart man. Well, not terribly smart, but smarter than you. I will hurt you if you keep asking for it. Hayduke zip ties their wrists together. He pats each one down quickly, pulls all their pocket knives, and tosses them into the ditch on the opposite side of the highway. He then walks them to the bolted-down galvanized steel bike rack in front of the visitor center and zip ties John Sr.'s wrists to one side of it snugly. This here, boys, is to teach y'all a lesson in common courtesy about honesty and respect for another man's property, apparently something your father never taught you. Luke took offense to this comment, despite having been caught red-handed, and spit a loogie at Hayduke, hitting him in the face. Hmm, says Hayduke calmly. That wasn't very polite or respectful of you, Luke. Don't you understand that I'm your savior today? Luke spits at him again, this time too dry to produce a good look. Luke spits at him again, this time too dry to produce a good loogie. I suppose Luke might need some extra instruction, A-class, he asks rhetorically. There is no, that is no way to say thank you, he says, and before anyone can respond, he rears back and punches the boy, who is nearly as tall as him, but skinny like all of his brothers, square in the nose, breaking it, knocking loose his two front teeth sending him off his feet and pulling his attached little brothers to the ground with him. John Sr. remains planted and says nothing, but pulls his boy Mark back on his feet, whose wrist is tied to his own. He's probably 19, maybe 20 years old, and thought he was hot shit till now, 
thinks Hayduke to himself. Not feeling happy about it, but not feeling guilty either. Hayduke grabs Luke's free hand from his face, where he is clutching the broken nose, now bleeding profusely. Luke is at the end of the human chain, opposite from his father. Hayduke pulls his his hand through the grates of the bike rack and zip ties it to the other side of the rack from his father. He finally zip ties every cuffed pair of hands shared between the brothers and father to the top rail of the bike rack, leaving them sitting with their feet free but their hands restrained. He could have certainly zip tied their feet together as well, but doesn't want them to die of thirst or be forced to chew their own hands off, figuring the Willises aren't the brightest batch of bulbs in Wayne County. Hayduke turns and begins walking away from them when he hears John Sr. call out to him saying, Please take good care of my boy. Get him there quick. And thank you. He sounds genuinely grateful and even says thanks once more but adds sir at the end. And another, I'm sorry, showing both his remorse and his gratitude, even while tied to the bike rack with his boys, the eldest bloodied and moaning in pain, spitting out his two front teeth, and the two quiet younger boys, who are about 12 and 14, looking stunned, like deer in the headlights. John Sr. feels that this man, Hayduke, had done his family a great service. He had spared them despite their sins, and they could now walk again towards salvation. John Sr. thinks about Jesus in this moment and wonders if Hayduke, despite his violent tendencies, might not be the second coming of forgiveness. If only he knew this man is no lamb and no shepherd, but the personification of God's divine justice, a tool of God's vengeance in a world gone awry and that killing this family simply would not be just or divinely instructed. As these men are not possessed by Satan, they are just wayward sheep. They are just plain sinful like anyone else. Generally, Hayduke would only kill if God showed him a sign, though exceptions were occasionally made in rare cases of pure self-defense. The Willises are lucky they hadn't come It hadn't come to that this time. Hayduke walks over to Merle and says, What do you think? Did we make some sausage or what? He grins, eyes twinkling. I suppose we did. But I also think we ought to get this boy some medical attention. Stat. Collect the guns, but let's stick together, just in case they aren't the only ones trying to hold us up, stagecoach style. I agree, Merle says before running over to pick up the guns. He jogs towards them. <clears throat> excuse me. He jogs with them towards the Ford and tosses them all in the bench seat. There's a Winchester 300 Magnum with a powerful scope, an excellent elk gun, good for 500 yard shots or further if one knew what they were doing with it. A Winchester lever action 3030 repeater, John Wayne's long gun of choice, known as the gun that won the West. And there is a 22 long rifle a Ruger with a 10-round magazine. The pistols include an old six-shooter that is showing its age and a newer-looking automatic, the first being a 44 Magnum with a a 6.5-inch barrel and tarnished gunmetal finish, dirty hairy gun, and the other, a 9mm M&P shield automatic pistol, 
a very fine sidearm. That, in addition to the 45 caliber 1911 pistol taken from John Jr., added up to quite an arsenal. Keep the guns handy. Actually, give me one of those extra pistols, says Hey Duke. Merle grabs all three pistols from behind, <clears throat> from the bench seat, excuse me, walks over to Hey Duke, holding out the 9mm, knowing it has more capacity than the old six shooter or the 1911. Hey, fuck that. Give me that dirty, hairy gun. That's more my style. You keep the automatics. This was perfectly agreeable with Merle, as he isn't even sure how he'd carry such a gangly firearm. Hey Duke simply tucks the barrel between the front of his pants and his belt, setting himself up for a cross draw, which is a preferred or which is preferred when sitting inside of a vehicle or sitting anywhere should he need to draw, shoot, and drive simultaneously. You ready, cowboy? Hayduke asks. Never been more ready. Let's roll. That's the fucking attitude. Hang on just a second, actually, says Merle, who quickly jogs back to the bridge and disappears for a moment. He then reemerges with the road spikes that the boy had mentioned, when they had nearly forgotten about, or which they had nearly forgotten about. These being folded up like an accordion until the desired moment could be deployed rapidly by unfurling them across the road with a swift bowling motion. Might come in handy someday. You never know. Plus, I figured it's best if we had these instead of some other group of morons. You calling us morons or them? Hey Duke asks with a chuckle. Mormon morons. Good call. Or, uh... Good call stopping at the petroglyphs, Hayduke says. Almost got my balls blown off, but at least we had a warning. The Lord definitely works in mysterious ways. Having had enough conversation for the both of them, it is now crunch time. The boy's bandage is fully soaked with blood <coughs> and dripping, so they load up. Before they pull over the bridge, which is finally all clear, Merle pulls the truck and trailer down to the maintenance-only road headed behind the visitor center, where he sees, as suspected, a parked vehicle hidden out of sight from the highway. He jumps out of his truck, pulls out his pocket knife, and slashes the two front tires of the Willis's minivan before hopping back in and performing a smooth three-pointed turn, no small feat with his long trailer. Meanwhile, Hayduke leans out the window of the Land Cruiser, for one final word with the Willises. He shouts, Just remember, boys, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Do not make me come back. Hayduke sees Merle back on course, pulls out in front of him, and rolls down the highway, the small caravan finally able to cross Sulphur Creek unmolested. It has been roughly 30 minutes since the boy had been shot. Things are happening too fast and simultaneously too slow. The 30 minutes felt like they had passed in an instant, while paradoxically feeling as if they had lasted all day. No matter how distorted their sense of it by the adrenaline rush, time is of the essence. The boy's blood is soaking through the bandage and onto the faux leather and plaid-patterned fabric lining of the Toyota Land Cruiser's inner door panel. Hayduke looks over, seeing the boy is a very pale shade and slumping forward, he reaches and feels the boy's forehead, finding it cool and clammy. He drives as fast as possible down the highway, around 80 miles an hour, 
only slowing down through the sharper bends. They drive eight minutes before slowing down through the quiet town of Tori, their intended destination, but needing to go a little, a little out of their way for the boys' sake. On to Bicknell, another ten miles, to the emergency clinic. People could be seen dining at the small cafe as Merle passes by. It is just as he had envisioned. There, are, there is still commerce going on in Tory. He isn't taking stock of which places are still open from the past and what might be new. That could be done later, with there being no time for nostalgia now. The boy's life is the priority. They speed up after getting through the half-mile town and again hit 80 miles per hour on the and the engine of the Ford is roaring, pulling the airstream uphill with all of its might. A handful of minutes later, they arrive in Bicknell, a slightly larger town with its midway to Richfield med clinic. Hayduke overshoots the clinic, not noticing the small signage. The building does not look like anything resembling a hospital, but more like a dentist's office. They do, however, have a doctor, supplies, extra blood, an ambulance, and a helipad in case the boy needs transport to a larger facility. Merle lays on the loud horn of his super duty and turns into the parking lot, hoping Hayduke hears the honk and sees him turn, which, sure enough, he does. Hayduke pulls off the right-hand shoulder and pulls hard on the handle of his emergency brake, skidding and sliding, slowing down just enough to pull an aggressive U-turn, as he releases the brake and shifts into second gear, squealing the tires as he turns into the, cor- <clears throat> into the correct parking lot. Hayduke parks and runs around to the passenger door with Merle already coming out of the clinic's doors, pushing a wheelchair. Duke deposits the young boy into the chair and Merle wheels him up the ramp, letting him go with a shove through the wide open automatic double doors. This boy needs help, he shouts into the clinic as he watches the unconscious boy roll into a bank of waiting room chairs, slumping forward and coming to a rest. A nurse peers around the corner and sees Merle's face, and he sees hers. She is beautiful, far too beautiful for this place, and he is momentarily stunned. He meets her eyes, reminding him of hers, before he snaps back into reality and shouts to the beautiful nurse, A.B. positive, realizing she may need to know. He turns and runs back to his truck. Both renegades pile into their respective vehicles and pull out of the parking lot. Heydu glances into the clinic long enough to see the nurse wheeling the boy back or towards the back. They pull onto the highway and head back the way they had, ca- they had come, hoping not too many people had seen them. They had done their good deed for the day, Hayduke assures himself, though he has a sense that the rest of Wayne County may not agree without knowing the whole story. He begins to wonder if this, excuse me, he begins to wonder if this is the kind of place to still have a county sheriff. He hopes not, but if that were the case, he prays it wouldn't become a problem. A bit of the boy's blood had congealed on the inside of the passenger door and window and could be seen from the outside. Best clean that up, quick. Don't want to draw any unwanted attention, he thinks. And, excuse me, he leans over while driving and attempts to wipe the window with a bandana, 
making it look worse by smearing the blood around. In Wayne County, within the former state of Utah, news still travels fast by word of mouth, and it wouldn't be long before everyone hears about the two strangers who shot little Mr. John Willis Jr. Everyone would soon know, probably before the end of the day, about the Toyota Land Cruiser and the Ford Airstream combo. Everybody would be on the lookout for the two men, and the words armed and dangerous would be bandied about. When they got back to Tory, Merle pr- pulls over to the side of the road in front of the old Chuck Wagon General Store, which appears open for business, with a few folks licking ice cream cones on the front porch. Hayduke parks behind him, gets out, and goes to the back of his rig, retrieving a towel. He then walks to the passenger side door, opens it, and hastily wipes up John Jr.'s blood, trying not to draw any attention from the patrons on the porch. Merle walks up to him, wanting to strategize. I think we ought to lay low for a couple of nights, see if this thing blows over before we have to deal with a lynch mob. What do you say? Suggests Hayduke. I say good thinking. If we had more time, I might suggest checking on a friend of mine, who I hope is still around, who might be able to help us, but I don't want to bring the heat down on him. I know of a good spot to hide. It's called Lion's Head Rock, just a couple of miles south of town, down a dirt track that almost nobody ever uses. It's a safe place, out of sight, where nobody will be able to see us or hear us, and it's naturally defensible. We need water first, or at least I do. There won't be any out there. I'm dry, except for the beer we bought. Follow me around the back of the fire station. They've got an outdoor hose bib. Let's fill up quickly and get out of here. Copy that. You're on the lead, affirms Hey Duke, having no better plan to suggest. <clears throat> the trailer feels twice as heavy and cumbersome behind the Ford, with the man now feeling rushed. They are officially on the lam, and that's what he always hoped to avoid. The truck isn't going quick enough to appease the adrenaline still coursing through his veins. But after looping around the backside of the chuck wagon, the firehouse comes into view. It's a small two-story building with two big garage bays, one for a fire engine and the other for an ambulance. There are only three fire trucks and six ambulances in the entire massive county that rarely get used. In front of the firehouse, Hayduke grabs his empty jugs and bottles, fills them up quickly while Merle runs a hose from the airstream and screws it onto the frost-free spigot to fill his clean water tank. They are moving quickly, almost fanatically, when above them, coming from the upstairs firehouse window, someone shouts a name that Hayduke doesn't know, but Merle does. Is that you, old pal? The man asks. Merle stands up and turns towards him. Well, I'll be damned. What do you say, Ed? Asks Merle. I say I haven't seen you in how long? Ten years? More like fifteen. Surprised you still recognize me. But I guess I ain't changed all that much, he says, trying to remain cool and relaxed looking. Still figuring out how to play this. Luckily, Ed is the friend he had wanted to see. He shouts up to the man in the window. What are you and Tracy up to tonight? A whole lot of nothing. Would y'all want to come party out at Lion's Head? Hey, Duke isn't sure what this is all about, giving away their destination so easily, but decides to trust Merle, quote-unquote, or whoever 
whatever his name is. Well, goddamn, if it ain't the old Matt Wheeler back in town. You haven't changed one bit, pal. Big wheel keeps on turning, rolling down into town once more. Ha, I never thought I'd live to see the day. I'll talk to the old lady after work and see if we can't come out there. Should be a nice night for it. Maybe I'll talk her into grabbing the sleeping bags and staying the night. But I doubt it. She's got work in the morning. Anyways, if you don't see us tonight, swing back into town tomorrow and come by my place. I'll be off all day. We can kick back and relax. Maybe go for a hike. Hell, stay for dinner if you want. Sounds nice, Ed. Great seeing you. We'll make it happen one, one way or another while I'm in town. That's for sure. Maybe you can guide me and my friend up onto the cook shelf and find us some petrified wood. That or up Sulphur Creek and into the goosenecks. That's always a good time. Hayduke is done filling all the jugs and hopes this conversation will be wrapping up quickly. Not really listening, but growing a touch impatient and paranoid. Being around so many people so shortly after having shot the boy. All he wants to do is disappear, especially since the boy is still alive. Hayduke, not being accustomed to leaving witnesses, and on top of all that, now someone knows his accomplice's identity and their hideout, which could spell trouble for both of them. What's your name, big fella? Ed asks from the window. Hayduke doesn't hear him, distracted, looking at a dark sedan parked and idling with two figures inside, <clears throat> just down the road. He doesn't care for the look of them with instinct and intuition flaring up in his gut. His name is Hayduke, says Merle, keeping things from getting awkward. Hayduke snaps out of his trance, pulls his attention away from the sedan, turns, forces a smile, and waves. Nice to meet you, Ed. He had at least heard that part. I'll look forward to chatting more in the next day or two, he says politely, but not entirely honestly, unsure if this place is safe or not. Merle, on the other hand, is relieved to know someone still remembers him. Ed was a good friend back in the day, and Merle believes him still to be trustworthy and possibly a major asset. When they first met, Ed was a retired accountant and had been Tory's volunteer fire chief for 15 years, while Tracy taught at the school in Bicknell, the only high school in the entire county, home of the Wayne County Badgers. They were a sweet couple, through and through, both Midwesterners who fell in love with Capitol Reef even more than Merle slash Matt had. Deciding to sell everything back home to retire in this little, little known place in the middle of nowhere, South Central, South Central Utah, which they felt was the best decision they had ever made well before the blackout. This area managed to ride out the chaotic times in relative peace and harmony. Too few people live here to cause many problems, aside from the typical town dramas and gossips. These people were used to being self-sufficient as a community, at least in terms of their security and food. While the world around them changed dramatically, Wayne County really didn't change at all. They never saw a riot or a looter, and they had plenty of cows to keep everybody fed. There had only been a few local wrongdoers committing occasional B&Es during and after the blackout, which they probably would have done eventually anyways. This county knows itself well, 
everybody in Loa knows everybody in Hanksville, and vice versa, and everywhere, everybody in between. Despite the nearly two-hour drive from one side of the county to the other, people know who is trouble and who is trustworthy, and everybody finds Ed and Tracy trustworthy, despite the fact that they weren't quote-unquote native Utahns, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. They had been accepted into the community due in large part to their hands-on contributions. Ed likes weed, but keeps it quiet here in Mormon country. (laughs) And so had Matt, who became a trusted confidant and stoner friend. They had bonded well during Matt's year in Wayne County. They would go on long hikes, excuse me, getting stoned and looking at interesting rocks, being in no rush to get anywhere too fast and walking together without feeling the need to speak for for much of the time, capable of sharing comfortable, contented silence. Most people in Wayne County are rarely, if ever, in a rush. Hence Matt's desire to appear relaxed and unhurried while talking to Ed, as if there is no urgency even though there is. Haydu could have sworn he heard someone earlier in front of the chuck wagon say, did you hear that explosion earlier? thinking about his grenade and that up-not-over theory of sound which Matt had stated earlier. He begins to wonder if sound dissipates or resonates in the canyon, whether it is muted or amplified. Did I really hear someone say that, or was I imagining things, he asks himself. His nerves are fried, and he could use a cold beer and a toke, having regained his taste for it the night before. Somewhere quiet and secluded. Chapter 16. Lion's Head. They pull out of town, turning south on a gravel county road. Hayduke in his Toyota is following the big shiny Airstream uh, trailer, partially blinded by the reflected sun glinting off its, its aluminum shell. They create a cloud of dust which anybody could have seen for miles around, but nobody should care to notice, as the alarm has not yet been raised. Merle is confident nobody is aware or concerned about them or their plans, fears, or secrets. Hayduke, on the other hand, is very concerned. He thinks again of the dark sedan and the word explosion, and wonders how he'd gotten into this mess. He used to work alone, quietly, in the shadows. This is Fubar, he mumbles to himself. They travel a couple of miles before the Airstream takes a sudden turn to the right, down a narrow 4x4 trail, rutted and full of chuck holes. They bounce and crawl through the winding track, scraping the sides of their vehicles on the rabbit brush and sage. The Ford and Airstream take another right at the fork in the trail, bouncing down another half mile of rough terrain keeping momentum to avoid getting stuck in the sand with Matt's truck lacking four-wheel drive. Ahead of the modest caravan, there is a massive rock formation in the shape of a three-quarter circle, like a donut with one bite taken out. The two men pull into the natural enclosure and circle their wagons, hugging near to the wall of the steeply uh, sloped rock. It is as if they are driving into their own private room with a flat and sandy bottom and roughly three of the four sides guarded by the towering lion's head formation. 
which in Merle's estimation appears more like a lion's mane than the whole head and face. The face of the lion would be the sandy space now occupied by the two fugitives. A turnaround in the trail, one way in, one way out. A lollipop, in trail speak. Hayduke instantly understands why Merle suggested this place. As he had stated, it is naturally defensible. While he doesn't necessarily care for the one-way-in, one-way-out layout, <clears throat> it does mean that nobody would sneak up on them. The tall rock wraps around them to the west, north, and east, which means they're able to view... They are out of view of everybody but the lizards and perhaps a few elk up on Boulder Mountain. Nobody lives in the area south of Lion's Head Rock, with the ground being too rough to build a home site on. They could see the coxcomb, a large feature that to Merle looks like the back of a stegosaurus, a massive series of fins protruding above other rocks and spires, apparently made of something harder than the surrounding sandstone. As the rest of the world erodes around it, the coxcomb stands tall and proud. After being satisfied with their parking, both men shut off their engines and grab their weapons. They both instinctively know that there is still a chance of pursuit, though Hayduke is more fearful of it than Matt. They take positions at the opening to their sanctuary, peering out into the bright and blinding desert. So far, it is quiet. The dust settles around them, and the quiet becomes deafening. Think we're good? asks Matt. Think so. Tell you what, though, I want to climb up to the top and keep an eye out for a while. I don't want anybody getting the drop on us. Why don't you grab us something to eat and meet me up there in a few minutes? Sure thing. Hayduke grabs his M16 with the Trijicon ACOG. That's Advanced Combat Optical Gun Sight with a 4x32 power scope with self-adjusting technology, allowing accurate shots, shots out to 600 yards in nearly all lighting conditions. Slinging it around his back, he grabs a pouch containing his spotting scope before he climbs up the slick rock, picking a route by instinct, finding a relatively passable way to the top. He goes prone and shuffles back a bit from the crest of the rock feature. He lays his rifle in front of him, on the stone and pulls the sighting scope from its pouch, deploying its small tripod stand. He scans down the trail leading into their campsite, seeing nothing. He looks down towards the Gravel County Road and sees parts of it here and there between the scrub and brush, winding through the landscape, still seeing nobody and nothing of particular concern. No pursuit thus far. He walks towards town and can see the roofs of the chuck wagon store and the attached motel, the firehouse behind it and various other structures and homes. All seems quiet. He lays there, <clears throat> patiently scanning, looking out for looking for anything out of place. After a few minutes, he hears Matt scrambling up the rock and quietly says, "Stay low." When his lunch carrier appears, Matt gets the message and gets down on his belly, crawling up next to Hayduke, dragging a small plastic bag and his rifle. Anybody out there? asks Matt. Doesn't seem to be. I think we made a clean getaway, but something's telling me not to get cocky about it. What's for lunch? <clears throat> Summer sausage, cheddar cheese, and dried apricots. 
Sounds perfect, says Hayduke. Go ahead and eat. I'll keep scanning. Then we'll switch. I'm thinking somebody ought to stand guard, probably throughout the night. We'll need to take shifts. When you're done eating, take over for me here. What's the effective range with that AK? Uh, Maybe 200 yards or so. All I have is this red dot, two-power optic. He replies with a mouthful of hard cheese and cured meat, chewing with his mouth open, ignoring all etiquette. I've also got my old Springfield rifle, but that only carries five rounds in a clip. I suppose there's the 300 Winchester we just picked up off the Willis's too. That's all right. When you take over for me here, we'll switch. The AK stays on the ground, the M16 on the ridge. I like this spot, but I don't like all the exposure we had in town. You sure your friend Ed is a good guy? Absolutely. He's one of us. I'm fairly certain. As long as he hasn't changed, he's independent all the way. He's the quiet type, not one to blab, but definitely a free man, last I knew. Good. After a few minutes of eating, now satisfied, Matt says, All right, mate, I can take over here. Get yourself some grub. Passing the bag of calorie-dense foods to his new companion. Hey, Duke, in return, hands the spotting scope to Matt and says, Stay sharp. I'm going to go down to the trucks and do a gear check. Hand me that AK. He slings the Kalashnikov over his shoulder and leaves his rifle with Matt, saying, don't go anywhere until I come back. Copy. Hey, Duke down climbs the lion's head and returns to his vehicle. He opens the passenger door and looks at the box of grenades, still sitting in the footwell. He grabs four of them and hooks them onto his utility belt leaving 17 in the box. He shuts it and replaces the padlock. He then deposits the box into its usual place in the back end of the Land Cruiser before pulling out another box, a silver-sheened briefcase with a number-coded wheel lock and thumb tabs on on either side. He rolls the numbers until they read properly, 0419 on both sides. He presses with his thumbs and causes the spring-loaded clasp to release with force. He pulls up on the now-ajar lid and exposes a high-tech pair of night vision goggles called the Squad Binocular Night Vision Goggles, or SBNVGs, which, like his ACOG scope, M16, and sidearm, had vanished from the Marine Supply Depot at his home base in Oceanside, California, Camp Pendleton during his sudden, voluntary, and dishonorable discharge. Hayduke, looking at the goggles, remembers using them to assassinate his commanding officer, who had begun appearing to him as if he had the head of a venomous serpent over the collar of his white dress uniform shirt. Hayduke wondered in those days if he had lost his mind. Killing an officer and fleeing from his regiment was his first transgression in all of his prior military service, which he had been highly decorated for up to that point. He couldn't, he couldn't explain to himself at the time, except by admitting that he had done, or that he had been compelled, excuse me, by some force of God or nature to do it. It was not his idea, nor did he even decide to do it along the way. He simply did it. He simply saw the threat and eliminated it as he had been trained to. 
He grabs the SB NVGs from the foam form inside the hard metal briefcase. He then fishes around in the rucksack of his Marine Corps or for his Marine Corps issued helmet. He attaches the goggles to the helmet using the integrated quick release bracket and sets the helmet down on the tailgate with care. What else, he asks himself out loud. He decides to change clothes. He is still sporting his typical tank top slash cargo shorts slash combat boots combination. No longer wearing his plates, but figuring he may want to. He strips naked, first carefully removing and laying his belt full of grenades on the tailgate, and then removes his shorts, tank top, dirty drawers, and socks with no show of modesty, though Sally was watching him through the window of the Airstream, wondering just what exactly is going on in her dog brain. Not using words to think the way people do, but thinking nonetheless. He puts on a fresh pair of briefs, then long pants, black with big pockets and reinforced knees, triple-stitched and heavy-duty. He then pulls out and puts on a black, skin-tight, long-sleeve shirt. He pulls up his sleeves and exposes his forearms to the air, sits on the tailgate and puts on fresh socks, finally pulling on his black combat boots. It's too hot outside for this outfit, but the sun is getting low rapidly, and the air and rocks were beginning to cool. It seems as though this day had only just begun, yet it was already ending. The last few hours had gone by in an instant. He grabs his tan plate carriers and containing level 4 armor plates, pulls the plates out of it. He grabs a nearly identical but black plate carrier from his big rucksack and slips the plates into their corresponding sleeves and puts it on tightening the cummerbunds around his sides, making sure everything is secure. He then grabs a black <clears throat> pouch designed to carry spare mags with a Velcro strap attached. He walks, with the, he walks with it to the rear driver's side door and opens it. In the footwell is another padlocked ammo box. He puts in the code and opens the numeric lock, lifting the lid. Inside, there are a dozen fully loaded magazines with green-tipped 5.56 caliber NATO rounds. He grabs six mags and puts them in his pouch, which he secures to his plate carrier using the Velcro straps. Feeling hot and heavy but ready for action, carrying a full combat load, he double-checks himself. He pauses, thinks, and goes back to the rear of his rig. He reaches into the ruck one more time and pulls out a balaclava and tucks it under one shoulder strap of his ammo-laden body armor. He finally picks up his utility belt and secures it back around his waist, checking the grenades and pouches to make sure it was all where it should be. He reattaches his leg strap holster with the M17 sidearm. He now looks like a true clandestine operator, which is what he is what he was trained to be. He had gone through MARSOC training, Marine Forces Special Operations Command, graduated at the top of his class, and had been on quite a few covert ops during his service. The last time he grabs any, er, the last item he grabs before picking up Matt's AK is a small metal cylinder, skinnier, heavier, and longer than Matt's empty aluminum beer cans and coated black, his pistol's suppressor. It is getting closer to sundown. When the time had come, where the time had gone, Hayduke isn't sure, 
but he feels as though he is now back in Afghanistan. The dry heat, the gear, the anticipation, the fear, and the fun. He had both a taste of dread and a sense of excited wanting. He craves this. Finally, he eats some meat and cheese, dropping the bag on the bench seat of the unlocked Ford truck. He scrambles back up the 300-foot boulder and rejoins his accomplice, who is still glassing the area between them and Tori. His prized M16 is lying exactly where Hayduke had left it, next to Matt Dash Merle. Still quiet, he asks. Not a peep. Good. Now I'll take first watch. Come and relieve me in about six hours. Grab some shut-eye. You have an alarm clock? I sure do. That all sounds good. You look like a goddamn ninja, Hayduke, says Matt, smiling as he and Hayduke once again swap weapons. If you hear anything while you're down there, take cover and expect me to come off the rock from the east. Just don't shoot me. I'll resist the temptation, he retorts, and they both smile. Matt scrambles back down to base camp. He unlocks the camper and lets Sally out for the first time since morning, aside from her quick relocation from cab to camper. She looks at him with an expression of concern before trotting off to find a place to potty. He fills her bowls with food and water and places them in the sand just outside the camper door. He climbs inside, leaving the door wide, held open by a plastic hook, and he opens all the windows to get a cross breeze in the stuffy camper. He takes the AK and leans out, or leans it against the wall near his bed. He removes his Glock and holster and pulls the M&P 9mm from his pocket, pulling the slide back partially, confirming one is in the chamber and checks the safety, making sure it's on. He removes the magazine and counts the rounds, 13 plus the one in the gun, finally, or fully loaded. He reinserts the magazine and slides the pistol under his pillow before laying down on top of the covers. His eyes instantly get heavy, but he thinks about his duty before drifting off. He opens the drawer of the bedside table and grabs an old wind-up alarm clock. He turns the crank on the back and sets the timer for five and a half hours from now, not caring what time the clock incorrectly reads. He then relaxes into the softness of the RV queen mattress. As he falls into the blackness of an exhausted sleep, her face appears, soothing him. Not the one he would have expected, but another. He wakes up to the sound of his alarm clock clanging, the small hammer oscillating between the two bells. He forgets for a moment where and when he is, stretching his hand out out onto the empty space of the other side of the bed, wishing someone was there. He rubs his eyes, yawns, and stands up in the darkness, grabbing his weapons and leaving the new 9mm under the pillow intentionally, figuring there was no real need to carry two sidearms. He shoulders the rifle and secures the Glock holster with its extra magazine onto its belt. He then goes to the closet, feels for, grabs, and puts on a light jacket, feeling the cool desert night on his skin. He steps outside and sees his surroundings illuminated by the near full moon, slightly smaller than two nights before. An eerie place, Lion's Head, he thinks. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) 
He remembers a party here with his fellow interns from the park. He remembers sitting on top of this rock, looking out over the whole of Wayne County and seeing small lights dotted here and there, mostly in the minor metropolis of Loa, with its population of a whopping 700, including dogs, containing the majority of the population and light pollution of Wayne County, as well as, as, well as its only supermarket. <clears throat> He remembers getting rather high that night with the guys known as the Hooters who were in the park studying the Mexican spotted owls and would expertly call out in a mock owl voice to locate the rare birds' nests. The Hooters, being the party animals they were, loved to get wasted after spending a week or more in the canyons, searching through the night and sleeping during the day. He remembers eventually laying down on top of Lion's Head to watch the stars, feeling baked and bloated with beer and whiskey, but seeing no less than three meteorites streaking across the sky in a short time, making wishes on each one. He remembers a girl, not the girl, but a girl, soft and sweet, who made love to him in his tent that night. She was one of only a few pretty girls in the county at that time, and like all the other pretty ones, was not from here and probably wasn't going to stay here. It seemed Wayne County bred exclusively unattractive females. A man's only hope was in one of the transplants. She was from Nebraska, a fellow corn-fed Midwesterner, and was of the plain Jane variety of sensuality, with nothing particularly setting her apart, perhaps except the rarity of such a muted beauty in a place such as this. He remembers her winking at him from across the group as they passed around a bottle of Jim Beam, and her beckoning him to follow her with a, with a slight head tilt. She led him down the rocks to his own tent, climbing in ahead of him. She had asked him if he had a condom, to which he responded he had more than one. Still coming out of a dream state, Matt looks around, he notices something at the entrance of their natural fortress. Not one, but two shapes lying on the ground. He hesitates, fishes into his pocket for a small flashlight, holding it up but not turning it on. He slowly approaches the entrance, eyes trained on the foreign bodies in the sand, with his rifle at the ready and the flashlight clenched in his left hand. <clears throat> when he gets close enough to spit but not touch, he lights his torch letting only some of the light shine from between his fingers, trying not to announce their location. The thin band of whitish-blue light illuminates two dead-still human bodies in all-black fatigues, lying face-first in the sandy dirt at the entrance of their lair. "'Good thing we decided to keep watch,' says Hayduke, says Hayduke's voice from the shadows to the left, startling Matt. "'These guys meant business.' He emerges from the shadow and stands tall, like the warrior he is. They, they, that's right. They were here to kill us, kidnap us, or worse. <clears throat> Chapter 17, The Study He sits at his desk with a computer and papers stacked high at the corners with no apparent organization. Receipts, invoices, and letters from various government agencies and creditors telling 
telling him how much money he owes them. He has no use for any of these papers any longer, and never really had. He does business on faith and handshakes. Paper is a nuisance to him. He works in lumber, soil, rock, and seed, not in paper. Money is nothing more than an unnecessary evil to him, at least the funny money that most business is done in. No better than the bills used in the game of Monopoly, trademark, which fairly well describes exactly what paper money is as a whole. He prefers tangibles and hard currency, things that can trade or be used. He has felt this way for a long time. Certainly now, these papers are meaningless to him. All that really matters is having skill and life. With neither, you have nothing. With both, you have everything you need. He thinks making himself feel better about being nearly penniless. He takes Sally out to empty her bowels and sees Randy across the street on his porch. You want a cold one, Matt? Randy says in the most neighborly of ways. Well, Matt responds with false trepidation as if thinking about it. Hell yeah. He walks up the steps of the porch and sits in the cushioned patio chair next to Randy. There is a glass top table with an ashtray, a six pack of tall 16 ounce Miller light cans and an umbrella with one of its ribs broken and its canopy limp as a result. What's going on, Randy? He asks, sitting or settling into the chair with Sally laying down next to him on the porch, bowels still ready to be empty, but making no fuss about it. We got us a cat, Randy replies. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, we lost our other cat last week. Oh, I didn't realize you even had one. And sassy on top of that, losing a cat and a dog in one summer. I'm sorry to hear it, Randy. Man. Sassy tore me up. I told Pam not to get a damn dog. I knew I'd be heartbroken whenever it died. I used to have this dachshund, and I still ain't over it, man. Easy enough for me to get over a cat, but a dog? Shoot. It tears me up. I know what you mean. Well, what's new with you, Matt? Well, Randy, I'm finally writing a book. A novel. Hey, Pam! Matt says he's writing a novel. Pam's head emerges in the open kitchen window and says, You fucking shitting me? Nah, no fucking shit, says Matt. I'm dead serious. What's it about? She asks. Well, in a nutshell, the end of the world and the beginning of the next. And how does the world go? Or how does the world end, rather? Everything goes dark. And how's the new one begin? People light it back up. Hell, Randy, you're already in it, protecting the neighborhood with an AR-15 on Ionia's stoop. You're fucking shitting me, says Randy, astonished. Nope, I ain't shitting. They talk for some time about this and that and the ideas behind the book when Randy eventually opens up about his health. Had to go in for my colonoscopy a few weeks ago. They found some polyps. Scared me half to death, man. All benign, thank God, but I just can't imagine leaving Pam this soon. You know, we met over there at Ionia's. No fucking shit? No fucking shit. It was New Year's Eve and I was looking sharp. And she was looking. Well, see, 
My brother was dating her sister, and he told me she was coming, but I figured, don't tell him I said this, mind you, but I figured if she looks like your old lady, I don't want no part of it. But then she comes in. Well, actually, I, I met her at the door, and damn, when midnight came, I kissed her right on the mouth. No shit. Kissed her the night you met her, huh? You better believe it, bub. I was still going through my divorce, and she was too, but we figured we were close enough to being single to avoid any guilt. That's good man, Randy. She thinks so, at least. She's stuck to me, and her sister stuck with my brother. They're still married too. That's wild. So your brother is also your brother-in-law. Yeah, I suppose you could say that. And your wife is your sister-in-law? I don't know about that. Don't think too hard on it now. Pretty funny either way. Kind of cool, though. I guess if it works, it works. Yes, sir. That was back in the day when we had good drugs, too. You could still get quaaludes back then and good cocaine. We had some fun down there at Ionia's, man. Too bad you weren't around back then. Hell, I wasn't even alive yet, Randy. I never got to do any of the good drugs, let alone lewds, says Matt, a little jealous. Oh, man, I'd take one of them, drink about three beers, and be good and fucked. We called them panty droppers. Them's was the best of times. You ever do any cocaine? Only once. With all that fentanyl on the streets, I figure I'd better steer clear of that. Kind of like fighting. I've only ever been in one fight, Randy. You can't hardly get away with it no more. Well, did you win? I did. I didn't pick it, but I ended it. I'm just glad I got out of there before the cops showed up, as it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong anymore. They'll throw you in jail just for fighting in the first place. Man, it's terrible they won't let you fight no more. <clears throat> it's like a goddamn fucking capital crime. Me and my brother used to kick some royal ass. A couple of badasses we were. I swear. I remember over there at Ionia's one time. Shit, man. Some fucking motherfucker wanted to start some shit over nothing. A game of darts, I think. I told him to step outside and we'd, sh- and we'd sort it out. On the way, his two homies tried to jump me. My brother knocked him out, and I knocked out the other two. Boom, boom. They didn't know we'd taken karate as kids. Couple of niggers, man. Shit, man, Matt says, not sure what to say after the big word is dropped. Man, I hope you don't think I'm a racist for saying that. I'm just saying, a nigger's a fucking nigger, man. Shit. I've worked with Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Italians, Jews, white fuckers, and blacks. It's just about respect. I've met black guys that I that ain't, and I've met others that are, if you catch my meaning. I think I know what you mean, Randy. A nigger's a nigger, a spick's a spick, and a honky's a honky. There's as much white trash as anything else. Hell, maybe more. Exactly. I couldn't have said it any better. Fuck, man. Shit's just so fucked up right now. You said it, Randy. I'm just glad to be in Maywood and not down there in Mars Hill. It's like Night of the Living Dead over there. Just went to the laundromat today. Had to keep my head on a swivel. 
I swear, everyone over there is either tweaking, strung out, or both. Nobody wants to work anymore. I mean, I like getting fucked up just as much as the next guy, don't get me wrong, but I still go to work every goddamn morning. Just driving through there was crazy. I had to dodge people wandering around out in the middle of the street, crazed and dazed. Did all I could not to run over a dozen junkies. Fuck it, run them over. You'd be doing them a favor. You know, Randy, I can sympathize with about any addict. It's tough out there. I'm just glad I've got more self-control than some. Existing is just harder for some people than others, I think. Amen. I agree. Those fucking pain pills, man, they got me on those a couple years ago, and fuck, they fucked me right up. I can't under, I can understand how someone would spend 10 bucks on heroin instead of a 10 milligram oxycotton that won't do them any good know-how. I've had surgeries, my wrists and knees, and that's why I smoke pot now. Thank God for grass, says Matt. Amen. Growing from the earth, just like the mushroom. Too bad we ain't got any between us, says Matt. Randy having mentioned previously of running out of pot, and so had he. Well, shit, man, come to think of it, I maybe have some old Mexican weed around here somewhere. I almost forgot about it. I'll go get it. Randy rolls a fat joint of mediocre pot, and they smoke it, barely feeling any effects, but taking a bit more, or but talking a bit more about this and that and so on, when Randy finally says, man, this country, this government, in 63 years... I never saw it like this, Matt. Never. I know what you mean, Randy, says the 29-year-old. I've been voting since Carter, and I've voted both ways. Hell, I even voted for Obama. I know a lot of blue-collar folks who've voted both ways. Yep, I don't vote for the party. I vote for the person. Well, Randy, to be honest, I don't vote. I think they're all scumbags. Never saw any one of them as worth voting for. You know, Matt, there might have been a time when I'd disagree with you on that and tell you it's your civic duty and whatnot, but not anymore. Now I know exactly what you mean. Fuck them, says Matt. Fuck them is right, says Randy. They talk for a while more about the world, about how things are and how they might ought to be. They don't mince words about it. I'm patriotic as hell, man. I love this country. Or at least I love what it's supposed to be. Can't figure out where it all went wrong. I think it was all bound to fall apart, Randy. How do you mean? All we ever needed was the Ten Commandments, says Matt. Ever since then, all we've ever done is overcomplicate things. Fucking hell. You might just be right. Jesus hated the fucking Romans, and they hated him right back. He was a radical. He believed in personal responsibility, love thy neighbor, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, all that shit. But he wasn't a fucking socialist. He wanted us to do the work, individually. Amen. Nobody wants to work no more. I've lost three of my best guys recently because they got offered more somewhere else, and I can't find nobody to replace them. It's infuriating. Nobody wants to work. I just, I can't. I know, Randy. 
Matt says sympathetically. I like talking to you, Matt. You too, Randy. I think I might need to get you on my podcast soon. You do a podcast too? Man, you're just full of surprises. Yep. Always wanted to be on the radio, but I figured podcasting was a lower barrier of entry. What's it called? I just call it The Show. I'll send you a link. So long as the world doesn't fall apart, you should be able to listen to it. I would love to, and I'd love to read the book. I'll sure, or I'll be sure to get you a copy once it's done. Figure anyone who's featured as a character should get a first edition. Well, I love to read and listen. I'm a student of human of humans, Randy, of characters, and you, sir, are certainly one hell of a character. Can't help it. It's just I just is what I am. <laughs> Thinking I should get more protection, though. Could use a new compact 9mm. Well, Randy, I don't even have an automatic pistol yet. I'm just carrying this. He pulls a snubby 38 Special from his holster, brandishing it, pointing the muzzle in the air. I've got this, my AR, and my 12-gauge pump. I figure that's a decent combination. You have a rifle, I hope, Matt asks. You'd better believe it. Good man, Randy. I thought you did. We've talked about it before. You've been a great neighbor, man. Always good to know I've got someone right across the street, just in case. Anytime, neighbor, anytime. They shake hands, say goodnight, after finishing the six-pack and the joint. Barely getting high from it, but enjoying it nonetheless. Matt wanders back across the street with Sally in tow. She pees on Pam and Randy's mailbox post on the way back. He realizes she probably needs to go number two, so he walks her around the block, picking it up in a plastic bag when she finally defecates. Now, with a fairly serious buzz, he heads back into, the, into his shop and sits down at the computer. He begins clickety-clacking away until the wee hours, recounting and fictionalizing it all with exaggeration and imagination. Chapter 18, The Attack Hayduke is lying prone on top of Lion's Head, no longer looking through the scope, but employing what's known as wide-angle vision. He is letting his eyes relax and his vision expand, not focusing on any one thing in particular, but at everything in his 175-degree field of vision all at once. It is dark, but the low moon provides enough light to make out the shapes of Boulder Mountain, the Coxcomb, <clears throat> or excuse me, and the Coxcomb to the south and east, as well as the Book Cliffs and Thousand Lakes Mountain beyond Torrey to the north. Hayduke does not know much <clears throat> beyond these names in terms of his surroundings. He is picking them up along the way, learning the lay of the land more and more. He notices a pair of lights, headlights, coming from the eastern side of Torrey before swinging to the south from their westward travel on Highway 24, coming towards Lion's Head and traveling a mile before going dark, headlights turned off. He can hear, faintly in the distance, the sound of tires on gravel, rolling slowly, rumbling and crunching their way along. He then sees a red flash of brake lights a half a mile away. 
at the fork in the trail before everything goes quiet. Sound carries nicely with no competition in the still air. It is a silent night, and no babies are in the manger. Just a man sleeping in a camper, and another wide awake and highly capable. Hey Duke immediately springs into action, knowing that his instincts are correct. They are under attack. He slithers off the crest and down the backside of Lion's Head, quietly looping around and kneeling behind a massive boulder in front of and to the side of the trail entering and exiting their campsite. He has a view up the trail about 100 feet, but blends into the rock, peering ever so slightly around it. After a few minutes, he hears footsteps and sees two dark figures approaching on the trail. Moving slowly, with rifles in hand and night vision scopes on their faces, like out of a nightmare or a Tom Clancy book. He has not yet deployed his own night vision, figuring he will wait until the last second, not wanting the green glow on his face to give him away. He hides completely out of sight and waits, listening carefully. He hears the footsteps approach and go past before he flips down the SB and VGs and turns them on. His eyes glow green behind the rubber shrouds pressed against his eye sockets. He waits another moment. These night vision devices were some of the few electronics to survive the blackout undamaged. Due to their steep cost and complexity, the metal cases in which these high-dollar investments are stored are built as Faraday cages, allowing any electromagnetism to run over the surface and dissipate without penetrating the inside. He stands up slowly, being careful to, re- to remain absolutely silent. He crosses his right foot over his left, beginning to step around the boulder. Keeping his rifle slung behind him, he pulls his Sig Sauer M17 from its holster and attaches its corresponding silencer. He steps all the way out, pressing the gun forward, locking his elbows, aligning the front and rear sights through the matrix green display of his $10,000 eyewear. He aims for the man on the right at the base of his neck. The two shadows are moving through the bottleneck opening and into their camp. He pulls the trigger once with a quiet tick from the suppressed weapon. The man on the right falls to his knees and then onto his belly, instantly dead. The other man attempts to spin around towards the direction of the silenced shot, but is struck twice a mere instant after his partner hits the ground. Once in the ribs, between his armor plates, and again in the face, reversing his rotation and sending him face down in the dirt next to his partner. Hayduke walks towards them, gun still raised. He puts one more round into each commando's head, not wanting to take any chances. Sally the dog sees it happen. She comes over and sniffs the bodies, pisses on one, which Hayduke finds morbidly amusing. Hayduke strips them of all valuables, weapons, armor, ammo, gloves, boots, belts, helmets, and goggles. He doesn't bother to look at their faces, or take their blood-soaked clothing, not caring to add more to his macabre memory bank. Good girl, Sally, he whispers. For a moment, he wonders if there may be more. Instead of moving the bodies, he leaves them and steps back into the shadows to wait for Merle to wake up, which should be soon. He lifts the night vision goggles from his eyes, taking a few moments to readjust to the gray 
moonlit world around him. He removes the silencer from his pistol and holsters it once more. He swings his rifle back to his front and sits down on a rock, watching the entrance to their enclave. He figures it's probably just the two of them, a small hit squad. Probably didn't know who they were dealing with or they would have sent more. More questions than answers come to him. Who are they? Who sent them? How long have they been tracking us? Did I bring the heat or did Merle? I mean, Matt. No matter. Either way, this is Fubar. There will surely be more eventually, although he doesn't think anyone would be coming immediately tonight. He cannot be certain. He lets his heart rate drop back to a rest and feels the sweat on his back on the back of his neck drying, cooling his body a bit. He always ran hot during combat, then would sometimes get the chills afterwards. He shivers momentarily in the 50-degree night air, his body making an attempt at homeostasis after the excitement of the hunt. He pulls down his sleeves. If these guys aren't possessed, I wonder if whoever sent them is. Perhaps I should have kept one alive to talk. Find out who they work for. Hayduk continues the inner dialogue. Nah, these guys were pros. Probably would have kept their mouths shut anyway. And I don't care to interrogate anyone. Always left a sour taste in my mouth. Best that they're dead now. And any more who come after them will be too. Matt is going to shit a brick when he sees this, he thinks to himself, smiling and laughing internally. Just then, he hears the clanging of an alarm clock inside the airstream. Speak of the devil, Hayduke muses. Chapter 19. The Pool. He's 13 years old, and middle school is out. First day of summer. Next year, high school. He was invited to a party, but didn't know if for sure he wanted to go. This was the cool crowd, who in fact were a bunch of douchebags in his opinion. The only reason he was invited was because of his girlfriend, who was most certainly in, even though he wasn't. He begrudgingly agreed to go, knowing at least he would see her in her swimsuit, and he would be seen with her. He knew she was out of his league, but managed to feign confidence beyond what he actually felt. Still coming out of his awkward years, showing <clears throat> pimples and newly aligned teeth without braces freshly or with braces freshly removed. He had begun to look like a man, though not quite fully. She, on the other hand, was already a woman, and a beautiful one at that. She would get hit on at the high school football games despite being eighth being in the eighth grade. But now they were on their way to high school themselves, and the boy felt good about his prospects. He had a few friends he liked, not many enemies, and an amazing girlfriend. He loved her, though he did not yet love himself. He is trying to act cool, getting out of his mom's car as she drops him off at the big McMansion. He's wearing jeans and a t-shirt with a bag holding his swim trunks and towel. He had come from another party, one with his own friends, celebrating their graduation from middle school and planned to change when he got to the cool kid party. None of his friends would be there, only his girlfriend and her friends, the popular clique. 
He already felt a bit inadequate in comparison to some of the other guys of the party, though he had not though he had no need to. He was trim, fit, and tall, sporting an athletic young swimmer's build, strong back and shoulders, impressive abs, arms, and pectorals, but still insecure. He still felt small. Some of the other guys at the party were bigger, more confident, funnier, and generally more well-known. They, had al- they were already smoking pot and drinking whenever they could get away with it, things which the boy was too terrified to do. He was too good for his own good at that age, trying to be a Christian, but not having the first clue what that means, thinking, only, thinking it only meant to be abstinent. He walks around the back and sees the 20 or so teenagers in the backyard and by the pool, some swimming, some hanging out on a trampoline. He sees her sitting on the trampoline, talking to a couple of the other girls about this and that. This was one of the first boy-girl parties. <clears throat> excuse me. This is one of his first boy-girl parties. Excuse me. There had been a couple of innocent parties with his group of friends of about 12 or 13 less than cool folks. The girls in his friend group weren't the hottest girls in school, though many of them grew to be very beautiful women. Like him, they were all just late bloomers. This party, however, had all the hottest girls and the cockiest guys, many of whom could have been said to have peaked around this time and have become less attractive since, less cool and less popular in their adulthood. Some became addicts or hookers or strippers or cops or teachers or salesmen, but his girlfriend was the cream of the crop, and everyone knew it, including her. Her confidence was not one of narcissism or self-worship. She carried her beauty with elegance and grace even at such a young age. To him, he might as well have been dating Audrey Hepburn or Reese Witherspoon. He walks up to the trampoline and announces himself, interrupting their girl gossip. She smiles at the sight of him, crawls across the trampoline on hands and knees, puts her hands on his, resting on the metal frame, of the trampoline, giving him a big, long kiss on the lips. She was good. He grows a little inside of his jeans. Wow, he thinks, mid-kiss. This girl is is incredible. He tells her he's going inside to change, smiling big after such an unforgettable kiss. He remembers how terribly their first kiss went some months before. He was so nervous that he had literally collapsed in the process of trying to kiss her. He felt faint and his knees buckled, causing him to fall into her as opposed to leaning in. He was so embarrassed, but she, being who she was, put both hands on his cheeks, steadying him and took charge of the kiss, laying one on him thick, his first ever. They had gotten better at it over the course of three months, even making out a little at times, learning to use their tongues whenever they could find some privacy. But she had just now kissed him in public, in front of everyone, in front of the other guys, who he figured might be jealous. Something in him loved this. He was now, in this moment, top dog, and she was, his, and she was a princess, soon to be a queen. He turns and walks towards the house, making sure not to 
to look back at her or smile too much, trying to seem cool, calm, and collected when he is absolutely overwhelmed by all of it. When he gets near the pool, he hears someone shout, Wheeler's here! Grab him! Three football-playing buffoons then pick him up off his feet and throw him into the pool, fully clothed and with his prized iPod, loaded with a few thousands of his favorite songs still in his pocket. He goes in with a splash, feeling the jeans sucked tight against his legs. He immediately throws his wet pool bag onto the deck and swims to the edge, feeling all of the wind come from his sails, losing his steam but trying to seem unfazed by this blatant act of bullying. He pulls himself out of the water, weighing 20 pounds heavier than normal in his wet clothes. He pulls the MP3 player out of his pocket, clicks it on, and sees a black and white icon of an iPod with a frowny face and an exclamation mark before it goes blank, dead forever. He could relate to the sad-faced exclamation mark iPod emoji. He hears one of his tormentors go, Oh, shit! seeing the iPod before laughing. They all laugh with him, all except him and her, who saw the ordeal from the champlain and had gotten up. What'd you do that for, jerks? He hears her say as she walks over. He can't even look in her direction for fear of tears. Still attempting to look casual, he says whatever. Nobody knows quite how to react or feel at this point. He is on his own despite her presence. She not any more sure of what to do about it than him. This was a test of fortitude, of resilience, of will. Man stuff. He would not let them think he was beaten or broken, though he partially was. He strips off the wet t-shirt, leaving on the jeans, and tosses the broken device into his wet bag before jumping back in the water doing a can opener with a 10-foot splash. He swims alone. He loves to swim. He stays under the water for a long time, making no less than three laps of underwater breaststroke in the little pool before re-emerging to take a breath. Those guys were bigger, but he was fast in the water. Faster than them, at least. He climbs back out after gaining his composure and walks back to the trampoline, climbing on with the girls, who he likes much more than the boys. She thinks, or she asks him if he's okay, and he says yes, unconvincingly. I'm sorry, those guys can be such jerks. Then why do you hang out with them? She doesn't respond with words, but crawls over and lays her body on his, putting her head on his exposed chest, feeling his wet jeans on her bare legs, but feeling no sign of an erection under his fly. He no longer felt like Top Dog, even though, in hindsight, he absolutely still was. After a moment, she pushes her torso off of his, grinds her pelvis against his, and comes up to kiss him again. This move got the involuntary response she was looking for. She feels him get stiff as she makes out with him for all to see. Fuck those guys, he thinks, kissing her soft lips, eyes closed. I love this girl, he says to himself, but not to her. 
He eventually goes home telling his mom along the way about the broken iPod. Tell me who did it. I want to speak to their mother. They should pay for a new one. Yes, they should, but no. We won't be doing that. It's done. His mother was very protective of her only boy, so much so that she didn't care for his new girlfriend. She was too sexy for his mother's comfort. She was too much of a woman for her boy, who she refused to ever think of as a man. You'll always be my baby boy, she would say to him, well into his adulthood. No, I won't, he would think. Chapter 20. Useless Papers He is writing two stories at once, one in private on his laptop and one in public on his social media. He has been smelling which way the wind was blowing for a while and wants to help people understand where and how they've been misled. He sees the level of manipulation and control exerted successfully on the folks around him, and he hates it. Hates it with everything he is. He can't believe how people have gone along with the rapid decline of society with such apparent glee. Being the enforcement arm of the tyranny by voluntary choice, turning on their friends and family by turning them into the extremist hotline, giving away names and addresses of their radical anti-government acquaintances, thinking of them as the threat to public safety while in fact being the threat themselves. The majority were easily swayed to turn on their countrymen, while the others, with the most sound reasons to do so, did not. This latter group continued to search about or continued to preach about personal responsibility, self-reliance, self-defense, community, and sovereignty, while the former group sought to destroy these principles entirely. There was still a semblance of law and order, due process, so the brave people who spoke out were not initially being persecuted or prosecuted, just watched closely, cataloged and placed on lists. There were rumblings of a political or a potential political push to ban all militia-related activity and confiscate so-called weapons of war from the general population. The ranks of the various agencies, the various enforcement agencies, began swelling rapidly as the government recruited willing citizens to rein in their more freedom-focused neighbors. The NSA, CIA, FBI, IRS, HHS, and DOI were all granted generous sums of money for the purpose of bolstering their ability to maintain control of their given domains, by force if necessary. The autonomy movement was forced underground. People decided to stop being vocally oppositional, at least publicly. <clears throat> they pivoted to speaking in, the, in hushed tones around barroom tables, living rooms, underground festivals, and in secure private messaging programs and anonymous chat rooms. They did their best to stop painting targets on their own backs, but the damage was already done for many. People began disappearing, one at a time, people deemed to be of a particular threat level based on their reach and leadership abilities. Characters like John and Adam from the No Agenda podcast, Jack Spierko from the Survival podcast, 
as well as the personalities known only as anti-state and faceless were some of the first to disappear, having hundreds of thousands of dedicated listeners and followers. This was noticed by many men and even a few women. Black baggers, as they were called, would take, <clears throat> would take them in the dead of night, sometimes met with resistance, but always well prepared to subdue the given extremists. Stories were told, but no information could be confirmed as no trials were ever held. They were simply never seen or heard from again. Some were killed on sight if they fired back. Others surrendered. It was easy to assume who the two had, who of the two had it better, but the tight control of information kept most of this quiet. This made people very afraid to speak, exactly the desired result from the perspective of the fascists. The rise of militias all across the country was, was known and vilified on the fascist-controlled propaganda news channels. They did all they could to maintain a strict balance of false stability, normalcy, and fear within the borders of the once free nation. They kept people eating garbage and taking unnecessary chemicals to, ma to mask the symptoms of their lifestyle-induced illnesses. The switch from animal protein to plant-based pro plant foods was disastrous. People were reluctant to accept insect protein into their diets, but for ob obvious reasons, soon were convinced that it was preferable to malnutrition and starvation. There was now cricket flour and mealworm paste listed on many ingredient labels on prepackaged and processed foods. The food sector was all but controlled by the government with many larger companies going out of business due to a myriad of factors. These defunct manufacturers would then be nationalized and a generic government-produced product would replace whatever name brand had met its, dem its demise. People ceased to care, so long as it was filling and tasted like mac and cheese. They were happy, or happy enough. Fewer and fewer people could afford to buy land and homes due to the ever-increasing inflation and interest rates, not to mention <clears throat> property and income taxes. Times were tough, even though monthly stimulus checks temporarily allowed most to ignore everything and carry on as usual. It infuriated the more aware minds and stupefied the less conscious. Anger and apathy were the two sides of the coin and one had to choose between them. The only other option, full enlightenment, transcending anger altogether. This did not seem possible for the man, even though he tried. Anger was his choice. He eventually embraced it, channeled it, and learned to control it. But it was always there, a burning anger that anyone anywhere would have the gall, the audacity to treat their fellow humans this way all at once things would have been or would have never been accepted 20 years prior but now were normalized and even celebrated parades of debauch of debauchery and sex would march through the streets in broad daylight exposing their bodies all manner of bodies to anyone in their path including unwitting children it was a bizarre and unsettling time for the more commonsensical folk if they said anything they were called hateful names, being accused of various phobias and crimes of speech, which the man didn't believe existed, 
sticks and stones and whatnot. It was almost as if manhood itself was made illegal, or at the very least, highly unfashionable. It was no longer considered cool to be a hardworking man. Unforgivable, actually. To be a hard worker was to be trying to improve, and to improve would be to be better than others, and to be better than others was a crime worse than almost any other. To be the best at something was to be murdered or kidnapped. The concept of equality was twisted and turned around into a utopian fantasy that everyone could, should, and will be the same. That was largely why sexual ambiguity was on the rise as well as the demand to be called something other than he or she. The man tried to simply use people's names, hoping not to enrage the hordes of ambiguous unknowns. He had, not, he had no hatred of them by any means, but it seemed they did of him for being a cisgendered person with a penis, a term that he didn't understand when he heard it the first time not long before, but discovered means man. Also, he was white, another unforgivable sin. It was certainly a strange and anxiety-inducing time, so many folks sought to soothe their troubled minds with television, drugs, alcohol, and silly vacations they couldn't afford. Not many were making plans or preparations, but those who were stayed busy doing so collecting and storing supplies, weapons and ammunition, building out their vehicles, setting up fallback locations, practicing bug out drills, often and often meeting with their fellow freedom fighters to run training exercises and hone their skills. Conferences, conventions, festivals, parties, fairs uh, for and by the freedom folk were organized and led. People gathered to share wisdom and knowledge of skills long ago lost, ways of old, indigenous ways mixed with a hint of the modern, with a permaculture lens to view the world through, and the goal of creating a better one before it was too late. This was the only thing to do, and it was about damn time to do it. The small and wise minority of people saw the tides of change coming in and chose to prepare for it in advance. If you would like to support the Easy Peasy Podcast, please go to easypeasy.ittybitty.tips and click the donate link. Thanks for listening.